everyone and welcome to another Monday evening and it's time for the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show where we'll sit back and talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds for the next 60 minutes. So forget about the NBA game between Miami and Indiana and let's talk about the Reds and the Indians. And to do that, let's bring in our co-host and resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, how are you tonight? Dave, I'm great, and I've been thinking about something for a long time, and I have to Uh-oh. ask, I have to ask a Cleveland aficionado, a historian of Cleveland Indian baseball, would you, would you have made the Colabito for Keene trade? Was what, what year was it? 1958 or whenever it was, 57, 59, trade when the Indians traded Rocky Colabito. Detroit for Harvey Keene. Would you have made that deal? Mark, that's an interesting question, but one that is before my time. However, I must say that my, uh, I guess, history book that I always go back to is my father, who for years has been a Cleveland Indians fan, and for years he has said that that was probably one of the worst trades the Indians ever made. Okay, I've been thinking about it for four years, and I, I had to get your insight because the you know the Reds have, of course, and for all of, of you Reds fans out there who have been around as long as I have, you don't have to guess what is the worst trade in the history of the Cincinnati Reds. It is when the Reds traded in 1966. They traded Frank Robinson to Baltimore for three stiffs that played about another two years combined. And uh, basically, when you think about where the Reds were in their development, imagine the big red machine with Frank Robinson in it, what that team would have been like. But uh, that that was the worst trade in the history of of the Reds, and uh, it's one that uh, no Reds fan has ever forgotten. Anyway, enough of the depressing thing. You know what, Mark? You go back to that trade, though. That may have even turned the tide on the 1970 World Series. Oh, absolutely it did. Absolutely. Frank Robinson was the MVP of the World Series. He had at least one three-run home run, I remember, very well. And, um, yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, he was in his peak, uh, and the Reds probably would have won sooner because they were coming into their own in, in, you know, the late 60s. And they could have won it easy in 68, 69 if they had Frank Robinson. But uh, I'm just giving you a little grief about uh, the Indians. But, uh, you know, every team, and some night we ought to talk about listing the worst trades, and every team has made them. Uh, every team, you know, makes a mistake and you lose a superstar or you draft the wrong player or you imagine what, you know, what. Boston would have been like if they hadn't traded Jack or, uh, Bagwell to Houston for a, a pitcher who pitched one year for them. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of, of, of fun historical trades that either did or did not happen. Uh, this week, as a matter of fact, I saw on ESPN, the Reds had a chance uh, to draft uh, the shortstop for the Yankees. Uh, what's uh, his Derek name? Jeter. Derek Jeter. Uh, they were in position to, to, to get Derek Jeter and, and passed him. I forgot who they got, but it wasn't anybody any good. And uh, the, the Reds could have had Derek Jeter. But then, of course, what would you do with Barry Larkin <laughs> during that period of time? Anyway, it's, it's always a fun exercise to look at what these teams do, the decisions they make, and how those decisions, you know, one, one decision by the front office like that can have an enormous effect on the history of, a, of an organization for five or ten years or longer. Well, you know, Mark, I did a football game one time when I was at a radio station in Ashland and was doing the Ashland Eagles games. They had a Father's Day. And I brought in my dad and had him do the the, uh, color announcing with me one Saturday afternoon for that game. You know, it it might be kind of interesting, and as you bring that up, he's the Indians historian. He knows everything there is to know about the Indians. Uh, 
it might be interesting some night to have him just come on and you can ask him some questions because I'll tell you what, he would tell you probably that Calavito for Keen trade was the worst one. You know, and it brings us to our first topic of the night before we get to what happened with the Reds and the Indians. But before we get into that tonight, Mark, I want to let everybody know that uh, we've got our Ask Us segment coming up, and you can uh, contact us or you can ask us questions tonight at two separate emails, Ask Us or DMitch at ultimatesportstalk.com, or you can give us a tweet at OHBB co-host. Mark and I are here tonight, the Indians this week. They're a half a game behind Detroit as we enter tonight's show and tonight's game against the New York Yankees. And for the Reds, they're two and a half games behind the Cardinals, tied with Pittsburgh for second place behind the Cardinals. But, Mark, there was a trade today in baseball that I think has some repercussions for both the Reds and the Indians. The Atlanta Braves traded Juan Francisco today to the Milwaukee Brewers for minor league left-handed pitcher Tom Keeling. Now, Francisco, of course, was traded from the Reds to the Braves a year ago, and they got J.J. Hoover for him. But anyway, he shared time with third base at Atlanta with Chris Johnson. He hit 241 with five homers, 16 RBIs, and his problem with Atlanta was he had 43 strikeouts over his time, and he was actually designated for assignment on Thursday. Araldus Ramirez, he is now, I would think, available for either the Reds or the Indians, and I'm hearing either one of those two and the Dodgers are in the mix to pick him up. What do you think the Brewers would want? Uh, I don't know. I can't imagine that... Milwaukee has placed too much value on Francisco. I doubt they're going to be willing to give up anybody of any any substance for him. Um, and to move anybody off their roster, uh, I don't. I, I just don't see it. I, I, Francisco is a, a decent third baseman. He's, he's got an unbelievable arm. I mean, this guy he has got an absolute cannon for an arm at third base. Uh, but I'd say he's a middle of the pack defensive player. But the problem is what you mentioned. Uh, I saw him hit a ball two years ago out of Great American Ballpark. It's the first time I've, I've ever seen it. He hit, it had to go 500 feet and cleared the right field bleachers. But that's his M.O. He swings as hard as he can on every pitch. And I, I thought when he first came up that he was going to be the third baseman for a decade. But he just he struck out too much. And when you had Drew Stubbs in that lineup, you had Francisco, you have Jay Bruce, you have other guys who are free swingers. He, he just didn't fit the Reds' the Reds M.O. And the Reds got a pretty good return in J.J. Hoover. I think he is a certainly a setup man of the future, if not a closer of the future. But I don't see Milwaukee placing all that much value on Francisco, whereby they would give up something uh, that they consider, or some another team would consider, a top pick or top player. Well, I know that they were even talking about trading Ramirez prior to getting Sam, uh, Francisco, and that's why I was bringing that up, because it just seemed to me like if they were already talking about Ramirez, this trade here gave them the opportunity to have a player to take over at third base if they do indeed go ahead and trade Ramirez. Yeah, but with Ramirez, it's not so much that they would trade him. It's who would take him and his contract. That's the problem. It's just yeah, he's got it, another two years on it for sixteen million. Yeah, I mean, I don't see anybody. Uh, you know, he's hitting pretty well this year, uh, but I don't see anybody you know stepping into that breach unless Milwaukee eats a lot of cash, and I don't think they're going to do that. So I. I think they see him as a, you know, as a backup. He can play first base too. He played first, and actually he played left field for the Reds for a few games. So he has some versatility. Uh, so I don't, I don't know what they're going to do with Ramirez, but uh, I'd be shocked if the Reds showed any interest in him. Well, from what I'm understanding, though, the Reds, the Indians, and the Dodgers were the top three teams that were interested in getting him at the trade deadline. And that was just what I saw earlier this morning before San uh, before I keep wanting to call him San Francisco, before uh, Francisco was even traded to uh, Milwaukee. Now there's another deal that I'm hearing 
is that Cliff Lee is possibly heading back to Cleveland, and the Phillies want Francisco Lindor in exchange. And that's an inter- interesting thought. Yeah, I think that makes more sense than either the Reds or the Indians being interested in Ramirez. I, I think that there would be interest, and, and the Reds could certainly use him because uh, Todd Frazier is just, he's not cutting it, you know, offensively. But for $16 million, I don't think the Reds are going to jump into into that game. But, you know, if they if they took off some of the money, if uh, Milwaukee ate half the contract, something like that, probably that would be of interest to the Indians too. But uh, financially, I don't see that, that, that trade coming, coming to fruition. Well, being where Milwaukee is right now, I mean, they started out slow, then got hot. And now they've had some problems here. As we look at their record, they're 21 and 34 right now, Mark. That's the second worst record in the National League, and they're 15 and a half games behind St. Louis in that Central Division. They're, matter of fact, they're behind the Cubs in last place in the Central. Not something I expected out of Milwaukee, but I think you're going to see a fire sale come out of there. What about Corey Hart? He could be up for grabs too. Yeah, but I think this is his free agent year. He just signed a contract. And, again, they've got some expensive players over there. And, uh, what obviously, what Milwaukee needs is pitching. And uh, I, I don't see them getting a whole lot for, for either Corey Hart or Ramirez. Uh, Corey Hart, you know, is, is a he's a decent outfielder, and he's put up some decent numbers. He's, I don't consider him a superstar by any means. And Ramirez is what? Is he 34 now? Something like that? Um, and at 16 mil per year, uh, there aren't going to be a lot of takers for a 34-year-old third baseman. In fact, he could be even older than that. I, I, okay. I, I, I know what you're saying, Mark, and I, and I understand it. And I'm watching the Indians game as we are doing the show. And it's it's really interesting tonight because... Uh, this is a game tonight between the Yankees and the Indians. I don't think either team wants to win. Um, first of all, is Drupal Cabrera is probably going to be out of the lineup now for about a month. He blew out his quad in the fifth inning. And Josh Masterson, for the first time this year, is kind of blowing up, and he's he's literally lost his head on the mound. First of all, he gave up a base hit with runners at second and third, and Bourne out in center field was throwing home instead of covering home plate mark or, or backing up home plate like the pitcher is supposed to do masterson cut it off <laughs> they had the guy at home dead to rights on Bourne's throw home and masterson cut the throw off in between the mound and home plate and then the very next time he th- very next pitch instead of throwing the ball to home he turned to try to pick the guy off second base and threw it into center field so the Indians are imploding here in New York after being down four to one. They were tied it up four four, and now they're down six to four. So it's it's an interesting evening in New York City. Well, the Indians are still in the fray, and that's you know that's the important thing. That uh, the Reds blew another game yesterday. That's the third one in the last three uh, three Sundays that they've blown. That they had the game won, and the bullpen um, spit it out. And it's amazing what what Sean Marshall has meant to this bullpen, and it's so obvious when he's not there. It changes up the rotation of the bullpen. Uh, yesterday, uh, Broxton gave up a two-run home run to a left-hand hitter, and I, I know had Marshall been available, they'd have brought in a left-hander to face him, um, and uh, I think he would have got him out, but... Uh, it's amazing what one player can mean to your to your team, and, and particularly in a bullpen when you have a guy who could have 50 or 60 appearances. And I'm very concerned that Marshall may be done for the year. Uh, his his symptoms sound sound very ominous to me. When you have stiffness in your forearm and you can't get loose, I mean that sounds like you know uh, it could be a, a Tommy John type thing. Mm-hmm. Hope that's not it, but you've heard it enough times when you hear that description of the malady, whatever it is, uh, it, it ends up invariably to be that kind of injury. So hope I'm wrong, but uh, that, that guy is very, very important to the Reds' bullpen chances. And, uh, you know, it's everybody knows it's still early, even though it's June 3rd, 
there's still a lot of games to be played, and they got to get that guy right. Well, you're right. It was a rough loss on Sunday for the Reds in the 11th inning, and after winning the first two games in that series against Pittsburgh, which is a big series, they lose that, that last game. And Dusty Baker talked about just how tough a loss it was for the Reds on Sunday. You know, we left too many runners on base, especially early. We could have blown them out. And then, uh, you know, we didn't get any any two out hits. You see, at the end, they got all the two out hits, including the homer and including that last base hit. And uh, that two out, you know, hits been a lewdness. And, uh, um, you know, and you just get sick of seeing that ball hitting over the fence late in the game. Um uh, like I said, many things that the, that happened during that game. So, uh, you know, we just got to play a little better. We got to, you know, put their our foot on their throat when we get them down. You know, it's just similar to the game we played against Chicago at home where we scored early and didn't score anymore. I know their bullpen's good, but our, our team's better than that not to score any. And, and uh, what, for the next 10 or 11 innings, we get very few hits. So um, it was just a... Mark, Brandon Phillips was hit in the forearm yesterday with a pitch by the Pirates. Of course, a lot is being said about that from what happened between the Pirates and the Reds last year. First of all, was there any discussion about that and a retaliated purpose? And was there any uh, repercussions on Phillips' injury because it appears he's not in the lineup tonight? He's not in the lineup tonight, and uh, obviously it's because of, of that, uh, of being hit. And I don't think it is over at all with the Pirates. I mean, the Reds had six batters hit uh, over the weekend. And uh, you're going to see some guys uh, <laughs> get nailed when Pittsburgh comes into Cincinnati. I, I'm, I guarantee it. And then you they hit Brandon Phillips, put him out of at least two games. I don't know if he's going to come back tomorrow or not, but... Arguably, you know that game yesterday. You have Brandon Phillips in there. Uh, it it means a whole lot to have him after, especially when the Reds scored four runs in the first inning. And it just uh, I, I don't understand how they can go after Brandon Phillips all the time. He didn't do anything wrong. But your question is: It over? No, I don't think it's over. And uh, somebody on Pittsburgh is going to go down. And especially when you have somebody of Brandon Phillips' caliber who can't play for two games uh, or, or more, uh, it's, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. Well, and I saw Chu got hit again. I think it was on Saturday. Don't hold me to this, but I believe it was on Saturday he got hit again. Now, he gets hit a lot, obviously, but did anybody make anything about the fact that he was plunked by Jenmar Gomez and both of them were on the Indians last year? I didn't hear any comments about that. Uh, but it's amazing. I think that, that uh, Chu has been hit 17 times, and it, it makes no sense <laughs> why he's doing that uh, or why they're going after him. But uh, he does have a tendency to turn into the ball or, or turn away from the ball. He doesn't back off the plate. He'll just turn, pivot, and take it off the back of the leg, his back, his, his, you know, his butt. Uh, so he does get hit. And, uh, you know, um, but he, whoever's in second place isn't even close to him in terms of uh, number of the frequency of being hit. No, I think it was uh, Ron Hunt, wasn't it, that holds the major league record of being hit 50 times in one season? Yeah. Yeah, and Ron Hunt, though, uh, I tell you... <laughs> He would he would dive into the pitch. I remember many many times uh, he would dive into the pitch and take it on the shoulder or turn his shoulder, take it on the back. And of course he was probably a lifetime two twenty hitter, so that's why he did it. But you know fifty you know fifty on base activities, whether it's a hit, a walk, whatever, that's a big chunk of your number of bats a year. So. <laughs> It's, uh, well, a guy hits 220 and gets hit 50 times. That's 50 extra hits. That's right. That's right. That's why I said he hit 220. <laughs> yeah, what did Pete Rose say one time? The difference between hitting 250 and 300 is one hit a week? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there you go. Well, 
The Reds were four and three on the week mark. They're now thirty five and twenty two overall. Do you realize that in the month of May, the Reds and the Indians each won eighteen games in the month of May, but St. Louis won more than that at twenty? Yeah, I'd like to go back. I saw that statistic too, and I meant to check that today. I don't know who who would have that. It's been a long time in history that you could go back and see that the Reds and the Indians won that many games in any month. It has to go back to the mid '90s uh, when that was possible. You know, when both teams were good enough to win that many games. But I bet it's been a long time. Yeah, I, I think it has been a very long time. I've got a I've got a question for you. As far as ground rules are concerned, and I, I'm going to bring you up as a baseball historian and umpire lover, <laughs> Mark. When a ball is hit down the line, and it hits the ball boy down the left or right field line, do you know what the rule is? It all depends. Did it hit fair or hit foul first? It hit fair. It's a fair ball. Oh, it's a fair ball. If he is part of the he is part of the field, just like the umpire is. If it hits if it's in fair territory and hits the umpire or hits the ball boy, it's in play. Now the difference is if he reaches out and catches the ball, he purposely reaches out and catches it. But uh, if it hits the chair, hits the ball boy, it's in play if it's a fair ball. Okay, now that's what happened yesterday in the Indians game. You explained it correctly, but the umpires gave Terry Francona two different interpretations of the rule. <laughs> one said exactly the same thing you did. The other one said that when it hits the ball boy, it's dead. And what ended up happening was when uh, the the player yesterday against the Indians, ended up hitting the ball down the right field line for Tampa Bay. The ball boy got up, grabbed his chair, who and, and moved out of the way, but the ball hit the, the abutment of the stands and kicked out and hit the ball boy and just died right there, right at his feet. Had it not hit the ball boy, it would have bounced out and, and right to Drew Stubbs in <clears throat> short right field, and the guy would have got a double. But when the ball stopped at the ball boy's feet after hitting him, the runner, got, Sam Fold, got third base because Stubbs had to come in from short right field to where the ball boy sits, pick it up, and throw to third. Well, that allowed the guy to get an extra base. Terry Francona got two different deter, uh, determinations on it and couldn't get an honest answer out of the umpires. And eventually in the ball game, because of the, the, the strike zone by the umpires and that call, he got thrown out, and he talked about it after the game. It wasn't the fearless before. I just thought his strike zone was. I, I, I wasn't. I thought he was inconsistent. It seemed like McAllister shared your opinion as well. I, 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 I told Bill. I said, Bill, I said, in fairness to you, I said I went back and looked at the pitches. I said, you know, because we all yell from time to time during a game. So I went back and looked at the pitches, and I said, you're, you're, I feel stronger now than I did when I was yelling at you from the dugout. I may have cursed. Um, I understand the rule. It just it got explained to me two different ways, so I was agitated. Just I know the rule, and the way it was explained to me the first time was completely screwed up. He was a little more than agitated <laughs> in that ball game. I never saw anybody spit out a lot of bubble gum out of their mouth as quick as he did when he was arguing with Bill Welke, the home plate umpire. It's you know it's amazing to me this year the lack of knowledge of the basic rules of baseball that these umpires have. It, it's just how can how can you not know some of these rules? This is stuff like when they made that pitching change last week. When the pitcher, if you bring a pitcher in, he has to throw to at least one hitter, and they, they, they I mean you learn that stuff in little league. And there have been three yeah. or four instances when they absolutely got the rule wrong, not an interpretation of the play or a judgment call or something like that. Like it's a rule. Mark, and it makes me think, and, and I have absolutely no basis to go on other than what is happening, with, especially in the last month with the umpiring, 
that there's something wrong between the umpires and Major League Baseball. There's a disconnect there where the umpires are trying to show Major League Baseball that they're going to run the show on the field, and Major League Baseball must be trying to get them to do something because the umpires cannot be that stupid to not know the actual rules of Major League Baseball. Can they? No, I don't think it's a matter of being stupid. I think it's a matter of being lazy. And what happens is I'm sure all those umpires knew all those rules this year at one time in their career, but they've now made it to the big leagues. They don't do their homework. They don't refresh themselves. Uh, they don't go to umpire school in the offseason like they used to to keep abreast of the rules, and they forget. And it, it's, you know, I guess you can forget anything if you don't look at it long enough, but there is no excuse for a 20-year veteran umpire not to know some of these basic rules. And what's what's hurting the umpires is with replay now, their bad calls are becoming much more obvious when uh, they made a play, uh, a misplay 20 years ago, or they, they miscalled one. You, you, you didn't have the ability to have the instant replay. and uh, Or I guess it was longer ago than that. But you know what I mean, that at one time, People forgot about it because you couldn't see it again. So uh, right now, the, the way I always look at that, you and I or anybody listening out there who's, a, who's an average baseball fan can go out and maybe not behind the plate, but on the bases, we can make calls and we will get 95% of them right. And maybe even behind the plate. But the difference between us and a professional umpire is they're supposed to get the next 5% right, and they don't. And that's what is so irritating about it, that most most calls in baseball aren't close. You know, they're just not. Anybody can make those calls. So the reason well, you have right. a pro, the reason you have a pro is, is to make the tough call. And they blow many tough calls. Well, and another problem that we had last week with the umpires happened in St. Louis when they were playing Kansas City on Wednesday night and then in Cleveland for the Cleveland-Tampa Bay game on Friday night when the weather was so bad, Mark, that in St. Louis they had a four-and-a-half-hour rain delay that Joe West and his crew waited it out, finished the game at about 4.30 in the morning in St. Louis, rented a car because they couldn't get a plane flight to Chicago, drove four and a half hours to Chicago for an afternoon game with the Cubs on, on Thursday afternoon, which was their next assignment, and got there just in time for the game. And then Friday night, the Indians issued an open letter to their fans Saturday morning, and I've got to give the Indian officials credit for this. Because this thing on Friday night, Saturday morning, turned really into a debacle where the Indians game with Tampa Bay was halted three different times for a total of five hours, Mark. The, the, it was a 9-2 to loss. It finally got restarted for good at 12.13 Saturday morning, and it ended about 2.50 in the morning. Now, Shapiro, Mark Shapiro, the tri tribe's president, he issued a letter of, a, of an apology and then this afternoon told the, the people that had tickets for that game that the Indians were going to go ahead and reimburse them. They could either reuse their tickets on July 31st against the White Sox or September 6th against the Mets. And on top of that, not only was it, of course, my favorite night, Dollar Dog Night, they they started giving fans that stuck around for the beginning of the game, Mark, two-for-one hot dogs. You got two hot dogs for a dollar and then 12-ounce pops for a dollar, which i, I got to give the Indians hierarchy credit. They tried to do everything they could do. But, you know, baseball has got this schedule so chock full, and it's got to do with the, the collective bargaining agreement. I understand that. But they've got to do something to be able to have rainouts. And, and pick these games up where they they end or something later on. But they've got so many teams anymore with interleague play that are just coming into a city for one time. They don't have any 
repercussions as to what to happen, what could happen if the game was rained out. Well, you talked about collective bargaining. I'm surprised the players haven't, you know, jumped up and down on that because playing in those kinds of games, I, I've had a couple of those games, and it, it's really, it's it's no fun at all. And especially when you have a game the next day, when you got to get, you know, get three hours sleep and get up and play again. So, you know, it's uh, it, it's ridiculous, and and there, it, it'd be so easy to address that either through a double header. The next day, call call the game early, and come back and, and, and play a doubleheader the next day, or play a doubleheader on Sunday of that series. Uh, but they they don't do that, and don't forget, the the games are in the hands of the umpires, not not the owners, or the teams for that matter. So it's the umpires making After that. The, yeah, right. When the game starts, it goes to the umpires. That's right. So the, the umpires. Make those kinds of uh, make those kinds of decisions, but boy, they're not very smart decisions, which amplifies what we were saying five minutes ago about the umpires. Yeah, and I just don't understand. I, I know that's got to be a directive for Major League Baseball: get these games in, no matter how long it takes. I always thought there was a curfew, but the curfew doesn't even seem to be imposed anymore. No, not anymore. And, and the curfews were typically localized curfews. Now I don't know for sure that is not the case in some in some cities, but there was a time a city would have a curfew. You couldn't, you know, have a pitch thrown after midnight or 1 a.m. or whatever it would be. So I don't know if they still have those kinds of rules around the country, but they 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 were very much in vogue in in Major League Baseball. I, I remember it, you know, in my lifetime where you couldn't you had a time problem. Well, Shapiro said, here was the explanation for what happened in Cleveland. It wasn't postponed because this was Tampa Bay's only trip to Cleveland this year, and the forecast on Friday for Saturday and Sunday was continued rain, which made playing a doubleheader on either of those days problematical. So they weren't able to even think about playing a doubleheader on one of those days because they thought Saturday and Sunday would be rained out too. But to have those fans, I know in St. Louis the, the, the Cardinals didn't do this when the game w- was delayed almost four hours on Wednesday night with Kansas City. They did not offer their fans new tickets. The Indians did, which I was shocked about, but they did it anyway. The Cardinals did not. I don't think it's fair to a family of four that pays 150 to 200 bucks to come to a ball game have the thing delayed for four hours and don't get an opportunity to watch it. And they don't even have the opportunity to get their money back or go to another game down the road. I don't think that's fair, and I don't think that's what Major League Baseball wants to have happen. Oh, I agree with you. And, uh, the the again, the fans sometimes are just overlooked. And the, the fact the Cardinals didn't uh, reward their fans for their patience and sitting through there just proves to me what all Cincinnati Reds fans know: the Cardinals are just the Cardinals are just bad people in general. The teams are they're awful players, and the fans are awful, and the organization's awful. And it just proves my point when you brought that up. I'm glad you did that because uh, Reds fans and Cardinal fans just don't get along. That was that was a great tease, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm going to give you another tease. We're going to pay tribute to an outstanding individual. We're going to do that right after this timeout. For the first time since the death of Dylan Michael, Cincinnati is back in the hunt for a pennant. To help get there, they sent two minor league pitchers to Seattle today for former all-star pitcher Randy McDonald and minor league slugger Matt Wolf. McDonald had Tommy John surgery last year and, if healthy, could greatly enhance Cincinnati's rotation. Little is known about Wolf, although his stats suggest he may help the team offensively. Last at bat, a novel by Mark Donahue, available at Joseph A. Beth, Barnes & Noble, and Books and & Company. And you can pick up Mark's book right here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Just order your book at the website. Mark, I don't think that trade was a very good one. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> I made hey, sure the Reds uh, got the best of it. Pardon me? I made sure the Reds got the best of that trade. Well, there you go. 
Hey, we lost an iconic figure this week. Has nothing to do with baseball, but I'll tell you what. This figure, and I'm, I'm trying to play a little coy on it because I'm surprising Mark on this one, uh, was simply outstanding, and I thought just for this inst- instance, we would pay homage to this individual. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the Of course, that's uh, Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton. They're both gone now, Mark. Gene Stapleton died at age 90 this weekend. You know, it's funny. Uh, that was one of my favorite shows back in the day. And uh, that was when that show first came on, if you were watching it back then during during the 70s, uh, that was a scandalous show. I mean, the things they got away with on that show. But you know what it did? It it made people laugh at things that they normally would be offended by. And it, it it seemed to calm the situation down rather than exacerbate it. And that was the brilliance of that show. And the way uh, Carol Connor played Archie Bunker, had he been any different at all, people would have been so offended. But he, But Archie Bunker was so out of it that you couldn't help but saying, my guy's just, he's a nice guy, but he's a dope. I mean, he's, he's, he's so far removed from reality that people laughed at it. It was a brilliantly conceived show, and I think anybody who had the opportunity to watch it loved the show, and Maureen Stapleton was just the perfect foil for Carol O'Connor. She was sweet, she was nice, she was innocent, but she was nobody's fool either, and that's why everybody liked her. I thought it was probably if not the greatest sitcom of all time, it has to be in the top two or three. It was just, and you know, the the brilliance of Carol O'Connor as Archie Bunker, I don't think you could really appreciate what kind of actor he was until you watched him in the heat of the night. You saw him as Archie Bunker, a complete and utter racist, and then in the heat of the night, he was diametrically opposed to what he was in All in the Family. Well, he had a very distinguished career in, in a lot, you know, for, for years and years. He was on Broadway. He was off Broadway. He was on, it made a lot of uh, movies. And, and he almost turned that role down and uh, kind of had to be talked into it. But uh, no one could have been better for that role. And in, in the heat of the night, of course, there was a TV show that, that, that followed that. It was in the 80s, I think. And uh, that that was it was never as good as the original was Sidney Poitier. But um, did can, speaking of that movie, do you recall there was a scene in that movie that was supposedly the greatest scene in all movies uh, up until the year two thousand? I remember watching the show in nineteen ninety nine before we got into the twenty first century. But they had all the scenes of all the movies. And they rated them as you know fifty to number one. Guess what scene was number one? What one? In the heat of the night, when Sidney Poitier got slapped by that guy in the in the greenhouse and slapped him back. It was the first time that a white man had been hit by a black man in the movie. And and Sidney Poitier, when he read the script, the original part of that script was the white guy hit him. He was a southern guy, you know, working in a, he was a rich guy, and, and he slapped him because uh, Sidney Poitier asked him some questions he didn't like. And the, and the original script was, in the script, it said he didn't hit him back. He just took it. And Sidney Poitier said, I will, I will take the role, but I'm not going to just take it. I'm going to slap him back. 
And he almost didn't make the movie, or he almost didn't take the role because of that. But if you if you remember that scene, he got slapped, and immediately, there was no hesitation. He slapped him back within a tenth of a second, and it, it stunned the audience. And But it was the number one scene that this organization picked, uh, because it had so much racial implication at that time. That, that, that's interesting. Gene Stapleton, dead at the age of 90, and that entire show, Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton, uh, they're gone, but Rob Reiner and Sally Struthers are still around, but that was just an outstanding show. Hey, back to baseball. Uh, let's get into our Ask Us segment. This is where you can send us in questions, and that's at askus at ultimatesportstalk.com or dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. You can also give us a tweet at OHBBCoHost. Mark, our first question this week comes from Jamie, and he says the minor league dra- or the, the major league baseball draft is coming up this week. Any ideas on who the teams are interested in and who the most famous number one draft pick is for the Reds and Indians? Well, the first part of that question is that most teams today, they don't draft by position. Uh, in other words, if, they, if, they, if they, they need a third baseman, they don't go out and draft a third baseman. Uh, they're going to draft whatever the best talent is, and, and typically uh, a lot of that talent is in pitching. You can't have too much pitching, but I, I've not seen a team in years you know, go after a weakness because it's going to take five years for these guys you know, to make it to the big leagues, maybe longer. So you, you really can't draft by position. You, you, you draft, the way they do this, they rate players on talent notwithstanding their position. So you could have the most talented player be a shortstop. And if you have an all-star shortstop already, you're still going to draft that shortstop because he could be trade bait. You develop him and you trade him for somebody else's number one pick five years from now. So, you know, there's, there's, it, it's changed a lot over the last decade. But do uh, you think the Indians have anybody in mind? Well, yeah, I know the Indians have one guy in mind. They're targeting that Colin Moran of North Carolina. He's a, a third baseman shortstop. He's also the nephew of B.J. Surhoff, who used to be, be with the Milwaukee Brewers. But the Indians, they're kind of in a different situation than the Reds are. The Indians have the fifth pick. Meanwhile, the Reds... Uh, don't pick until number 27. So 26 players will be gone before the Reds can pick. The Indians pretty much have a good idea as to who's going to be available when they pick with that fifth slot. You know, next year, we'll get to the second half of that question in a second, but uh, it's interesting that the Reds, uh, and Jay Bruce, I think, just hit a home run. He did. Reds ahead 3 nothing, And, boy, Jay Bruce just crushed one. At any rate, uh, when the Reds lose two this year, and they will, uh, he'll he'll be signed by somebody. The Reds are get a sandwich pick. So assuming he goes with somebody, I hope he goes with somebody who has a high draft pick, because the Reds would then get a sandwich pick and probably be able to pick before next year. They'll be, be able to pick before twenty seventh or twenty eighth. Well, and and another thing is too, Mark. You know, you mentioned about how they don't pick for position. Another reason you really can't pick for position is a lot of these high school teams. The best player they've got is not only usually their starting pitcher, but their starting shortstop when he doesn't pitch. So, you know, most of these players that they pick are either going to be a pitcher or a shortstop, and then they move them at different positions, taking into consideration where they might be when they develop them. So a lot of these guys you're going to see they're either a pitcher or a shortstop that are drafted, especially in the first round. Well, back to the other half of that question, uh, some of the memorable picks. Uh, that the Reds had, uh, I can remember, you know, when you think about that 1970s team, you know, Johnny Bench, people forget, was not a number one draft pick for that team. Uh, he was a number two pick, which means every other team in baseball passed over Johnny Bench before the Reds could draft him number two. The Reds drafted Bernie Carbo number one that year. And uh, when you look at guys like... Uh, the team now that they have, uh, Jay Bruce was a number one draft pick. Homer Bailey was a number one draft pick. 
So the Reds have gotten much better of late in, in really picking out some great talent. And I think what has hurt the Indians is that they've had some problems with their draft picks over the years, and I think it's hurt them. Yeah, it, it really has. They, they've been terrible at drafting. Uh, so to sit here and tell you who their greatest number one pick ever was, I have absolutely no idea because they've been so poor at it. We've got another question here from Dick282 who asks me, I was always against the Ubaldo Jimenez trade. How do I feel about it now? Well, in all honesty, the Ubaldo Jimenez deal is looking a lot better, and it's always been said that you have to wait two or three years to really put together a good opinion on a trade. Well, Jimenez was traded to the Indians for Drew Pomeranz and Alex White. Alex White is out this year with Tommy John surgery, and Drew Pomeranz is still in the minor leagues for the Colorado Rockies. Meanwhile, in his last six starts, Ubaldo Jimenez, uh, in five of those six starts, has given up two or less runs. He's been outstanding, especially on Saturday against Tampa Bay when he pitched a 5 nothing shutout. I would say right now this trade looks pretty good for the Indians. Yeah, but like you said, uh, if Pomerantz and White come back in two years and have great careers and, and <laughs> Obaldo, uh you know, falls on his face again, <clears throat> you know, it could it could it could change. All trades are crapshoots, and you, you take your pick, and it's it's more the timing of the trade. What are you trying to accomplish in the short term, or are you looking long term? The Indians they were looking short term. That they felt they had he he Imanez was a guy who could come in and help that team win, and it looks like they were right. You know, he, he turned last year. He was awful, but he's turned it around this year, and the Indians are in a position to win the division. Mark, we've got one more question that just came in off the Twitter account from Pete Rose fourteen. I, I doubt this is the real Pete Rose, but anyway, he asks the question: How much longer will Walt Jockety be the GM of the Reds? I think he'll be the GM as long as he wants to be. Uh, th this team is not only performing well in the field, they're drawing well. Uh, I heard a comment the other day, it was uh, on the game of the week, national game of the week, about how deep the Reds' minor league team is, or th their system is. They, they've got talent. Uh, I saw the Stevenson kid pitch the other night for Dayton, and I'll tell you what, uh, he, he was throwing 96-97, and he, he looks like a stud, and I think he's only 19 or 20 years old. Uh, this kid, is he, he looks... He looks as good as anything the Reds have had in the minor leagues pitching-wise for a long time, including Chapman. He's that good. And the, the Reds have three or four other players like that, you know, Billy Hamilton, and you can go on and on. But uh, the Reds, uh, the way they're playing, the way they're drawing, uh, I think uh, Jockety is going to be around as long as he wants to be, which I would say at least three or four more years. Mark, this is my question. The Cardinals are professed to have, by most major league pundits, the best minor league system in baseball today. How much does that attribute to Walt Jockety? I think it's been long enough now that his fingerprints are no longer on that team. Uh, he, you know, they, they've got some young kids, 21, 22 years old, that he had nothing to do with. They're, they're young pitching, but you know, I, I'm not that. Uh, not, I'm not saying I'm not enamored by it, but the proof for young pitching is not their first four or five starts. It's it's what they do over a longer period of time, and the jury's still way out on that. And, you know, I, I would think with the Reds, with Sengrani and Stevenson and some other guys, they uh, Corsini they, they have down there, and there's a couple other uh, arms they have. I think the Reds are just as solid pitching-wise as the Cardinals. But some of the, I mean, they put these kids... They make two or three good starts, and they got you know they're ticketing them for the Hall of Fame. It makes no sense. What do they do in the heat of a pennant race? What do they do three or four years from now after the hitters figure them out? That's when you make your decision on how good your pitching is. Well, in the meantime, I'm looking at Baseball America's mock draft for this Thursday, and they are projecting that the Reds at number 27 
could take Tennessee high school right-hand pitcher Kyle Serrano, who reportedly could wind up playing for his father at the University of Tennessee. Now, no word on whether or not his father is Pedro Serrano, who was the left fielder for the Indians in Major League One, but we won't get into that right now. Um, I, I know absolutely nothing about Kyle Serrano, Mark. I don't know if you do or not. I don't. And, you know, right now everybody's guessing. You have one, one team draft out of order or pick somebody that they're not supposed to pick, and, you know, all of it changes. So um, who knows who the Reds are going to take. But, you know, I think most teams, unless there is just a tremendous offensive talent like a Jay Bruce in the minor leagues, uh, in more, most cases they're going to take pitching because pitching and defense wins. And there's a lot of guys who can play right field. Well, that's our Ask Us segment for tonight. Be sure to send in your questions for next Monday night to askus at ultimatesportstalk.com or dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. Or you can send them in via the Twitter at OHBBCoHost. Mark, the Indians are kind of in dire straits right now. Not only are they down 7-4 to tonight to the New York Yankees, and they've lost as Drupal Cabrera, and it just came across here just a few minutes ago that as Drupal Cabrera has been diagnosed with a strained right quad muscle. He will have an MRI tomorrow, and there is no word yet as to how long he will be out. So that's the word on Cabrera. Of course, the closer, Chris uh, Perez, who has the right shoulder soreness, has been cleared to resume throwing on Wednesday but starter Brett Myers, who has the right elbow inflammation, kind of the same thing that you were talking about with Sean Marshall where he's got the tightness in his forearm. He's still four to five days from throwing, and he's, both those players are on the 15-day DL, but Myers has been out for almost the last month. So not a lot going good for the Tribe right now. Well, these things are going to happen throughout the year, and you, if, if the report is accurate and it's a strain, that's the kind of thing that you know you could you could not even go on the DL, depending on you know how severe the strain is. But if it's a pull or a tear, those are much more uh, much more serious, and those are trips to the DL for sure. But um, do you think they might put uh, Cabrera at first base to keep his bat in there? And and no, 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 he 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 would not play first base. I think he's. The way they carried him off the field tonight, Mark, he's going on the DL. Um, now, here's the question. They could bring up Francisco Lindor right now. That's an intriguing possibility because he's playing so well at Class AA, he could be brought up, and and especially if it's just a two-week proposition. They've got Mike Avilles to play at shortstop full-time, but hey, Bring the kid up. He, they they had him up in the on the minor league uh, spring training camp. I know that's a lot different. Don't don't take this the wrong way. But we're not. We're in the the dog days of summer. Yeah, we're in the middle of a pennant race. But I think you could spot start this kid and get an idea for what he's got. I'll bet they don't do that. Now, if you if you were to tell me that he could come up and start and play every day, they might do it. But they're not going to put him on the bench and, and arrest his development if he's going to be, you know, sitting on the bench and not being able to play for two or three weeks. Uh, I think that's that's the wrong move for them, and I think they would probably bring up somebody else. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how serious that injury is because, you know, I was watching Cabrera play the last last week the Reds. Boy, he's a good player. He he really is. He, he's a he's scary at the plate, and what a defensive player he is. But I wonder if he's going to outgrow shortstop and, and, and would be just a terrific third baseman. Well, that that's a good question, and I think he possibly could because although he, he's made some outstanding plays at short, the problem with Cabrera that I've mentioned on previous shows is I'm not enamored with his ability to hit in the number three position. Yeah, he's a good hitter. He's a switch hitter, but he doesn't seem to hit when the game is on the line and players are in scoring position. That's where I've got a problem with him. I like Michael Brantley in that third spot an awful lot, but that brings up a problem 
much like Dusty Baker has in Cincinnati, if you put Brantley in the number three position for the Indians in the batting order, then you've got Bourne, a left-handed hitter, Kipnis, a left-handed hitter, and Brantley, a left-handed hitter, one, two, three in your lineup, and I know Francona doesn't like that. That's why he likes Cabrera at number three. Well, yeah, I think from when you when you face the Indians, you hate to see Cabrera hitting number three because he's going to get up more frequently, you know. And the only other place you could put him, uh, I guess you could put him at number two or number four or number five for that matter. But he's a real force in that lineup, and he's he's your best hitter, and he ought to hit number three. Well, that, and that's where they've got him right now. But like I said, I think he's going to be out for probably they'll they'll put him on the fifteen day DL. I'm convinced of that this weekend. Or, or this week. And, you know, another thing is you've got Brett Myers, and we've got to see what happens with him. I don't think he's going to be able to come back and be in the starting rotation, Mark, but I think he'd be a good addition to the bullpen, and that's what we need right now. Yeah, and he has, a, of course, a history in the bullpen. He was a very effective bullpen guy with, with Philadelphia. And I don't know if he was in the bullpen or starting with, with Houston, but he used to throw really hard, and, and for uh, I always thought he was just a great eighth inning guy, if not a closer. But he he, he can throw. He's used to the bullpen; it doesn't scare him, and uh, that's where I would use him too. Well, and the Indians, as we said last week, they're in the middle of that 25 game stretch, and it has not been a good one for them so far. They've played 13 games; they've lost nine of the last 13 versus Detroit, Boston, and Tampa Bay. Now they're playing the Yankees tonight, and as I said, they're down seven to four. So there's the 14th game, and they're probably going to lose 10 of their next 14. But <laughs> the good news is they're still only a half a game behind Detroit in the Central Division. Now, here's another thing, Mark, that just hit me <clears throat> that I wanted to bring up tonight. I heard another rumor this weekend that Kansas City is going so bad that they're thinking of making a trade at man- a, 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 a change at manager getting rid of Ned Yost, and the thought is they're trying to bring in Mike Hargrove. Well, that would be an interesting move. You know, Ned Yost, he's had his chances. You know, he's been with uh, Milwaukee, and he won, he won there a couple years. Uh, but with Kansas City, with the talent they had, I thought that team was going to go straight to the top this year. But every year, the the, the the thought is, you know, the, the, the smart pick is, this is Kansas City's year. And they're playing terribly. And these young studs they have just don't pan out. I, I don't understand it. They just don't hit. And matter of fact, they fired their hitting coach a week ago, and they brought in George Brett to be their temporary hitting coach. He's on the bench now with the team. And his first game was the, the, the debacle in St. Louis last Wednesday when he had to sit around for nine hours. But, uh, yeah, so that that's the uh, general consensus right now that Yost is not going to be around very much longer. Hey, what are the Reds got coming up this week, Mark? Well, they've got uh, Colorado the first uh, three games this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They have an off day Thursday. And then the horrid, horrible, bad person team, the Cardinals, come into Cincinnati for the first time, and that. I think all three games are sold out, and they should be. Yeah, that ought to be extremely interesting after the uh, six plunkings that happened. Well, not not with the the Cardinals, but it, it's always a plunk fest with the Cardinals, isn't it? That's right. But I'll tell you, the Pirates, uh, uh, they're they're asking for it. I mean, the Reds have some guys that can bring it up there pretty hard. And uh, like I said before, this ain't over. Well, and another thing that just came across, Mark, was that uh, the Cardinals catcher, Yadier Molina, has been suspended one game and fined an undisclosed amount for making contact with an umpire during an argument on Sunday. I'm shocked the way the umpires are calling things, that there isn't more contact with them. I think it should have been 30 games. (laughs) Or, Or at least seven until the end of this week, right? That's right, at least. Yeah. Well, the Indians, they've got not only the Yankees tonight, but they've got them tomorrow night and Wednesday afternoon. Then the Indians are off Thursday, just like the Reds are. And then they go to Detroit Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then Texas next week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And it just keeps rolling 
on. And we'll be telling you all about it next Monday night on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Mark, should be an interesting week. We'll be back next week. Go Reds. Go Indians. <laughs> go both. Hey, and don't forget to join us on the BBA Baseball Talk Show on Thursday night. And just so everybody knows, uh, we will be beginning our new show here on Ultimate Sports Talk on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. It's the Ultimate Sports Talk Show on Ultimate Sports Talk. That begins on June 20th at 7 o'clock. It's an all-sports talk show hosted by yours truly. But join Mark Donahue and I next Monday night here on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show at 9 o'clock. Until then, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week. Good night, everybody.